you're about to hear a true story of someone who has taken life's lemons and made lemonade. I am Heidi, your host, and thank you for joining me. Marty, welcome to Heidi's Lemonade Stand. I'm so looking forward to getting to know you, hearing more about you. I want to hear your story. So start out by telling me just a couple of things about yourself. I'm a retired Navy SEAL officer and spent 20 years in uniform doing that job. Interesting thing about that is I was probably the last person in the world you would have thought would have gone into that profession. I was 17, about 125 pounds soaking wet. And uh, even after I was uh, able to get through the initial screening and training and get into my first SEAL team, uh, when I went into the building the, on my very first day, I was actually checking in. I had my orders in hand. And uh, the person that was sitting there at the desk said, uh, you know, may I help you? And I said, sure, I'm checking in. And he just looked at me, kind of head to toe, back up again, said, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> so <clears throat> then, he, then he gets on the little, the little intercom thing and he calls for uh, somebody to come forward because there's a guy trying to check in. And this guy walks in. And the first guy was probably built like an NFL football player. The second guy walks in. He's definitely built like an NFL football player. And he steps in and he goes, this guy, what are they, what are they doing? Sending, sending the kids of the guys that are getting through training here? Is this some kind of a joke? <laughs> and then he calls, tells the, call the operations officer. So the operations officer shows up. He's a Navy power lifter, among other things. So he's even bigger than the other two guys. And the three of them are filling, in, filling up the little room, staring down at me shaking their heads. And that was my first day in a SEAL team. Oh, no. They let you in. You did they it. did. Woo. Yeah. I struggled for 20 years to put a little bit of weight and muscle on. But yeah, that was that was the my inauspicious start. Oh, my goodness. I love that. <laughs> All right. Well, you got to take me back. Tell me your lemon to lemonade story. What's happened to you or why are you doing what you do now? I'm a CEO and a chief strategy officer for an employee-owned enterprise. It's got uh, two different operating businesses. One is a healthcare operation. The other one is a government uh, contracting operation that focuses on training. So two totally different types of uh, industries, two totally different kinds of companies, and they're all wrapped underneath the uh, umbrella of an employee-owned organization that I uh, am responsible for. So I have a lot of experience trying to build maintain, scale companies, start companies, sometimes sell companies or buy companies. And I kind of grew into that from my experience in the SEAL teams as an officer and a leader and my uh, education in, in business, business management. And I took all of that and my current experiences and I wrapped it all up and I put it in a book called Be Nimble, which uh, I wrote about 24 months ago, came out January this year to try to try to collect all my experiences along that whole path. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, how failure made me stronger, uh, advice, guidance, insights to aspiring leaders or leaders that aren't necessarily doing exactly what I'm doing out there. It could be a nonprofit. It could be almost any kind of organization. And, you know, all through along you know, that, that long path, uh, I had five kids, I had five grandkids. So, uh, so far, it's been, it's been a pretty full life and a crazy adventure. 
Yeah, it sounds like it. I love it when people can take their experiences and make it into a book to be able to share with other people to make their lives better and learn and improve. And so I think that's a great gift when people are able to do that. So what would you say was one of the hardest things, your lemon experience that you had to overcome that you're able to share? Well, the hardest thing was my oldest son, who was in the Air Force, passed away when he was 22 in a car accident. Actually, when he was going back to his Air Force base in Utah uh, in 2006, he got caught in an ice storm, um, a, a fairly um, historic ice storm, as it turned out. About 19 people passed away in that storm. And, you know, that took a long time to uh, deal with that and try to get over that. I mean, I had other kids. I had to focus on being a father. And, and obviously, I had a profession, so I had to pay attention to the people that were looking up to me for, uh, for attentive and, you know, active leadership. So that was, that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to endure. I mean, I lost a lot of friends uh, over the years in the Navy and the SEAL teams. It's, it's kind of a rough business. Um, we lost a lot of people just in training to go to war, not, not just going to war. And I thought I was not so much inoculated, but I thought I was a little, I had a little bit of scar tissue in that area. But, you know, when it's one of your, your kids, even if he's 22 years old, that's, that's kind of a hard thing to overcome. And that was, like I said, 2006. So it, it's been a long time, but, you know, it's still part of who I am now. Yeah. What do you think made it so you could get through? What, what sustained you during that time? You know, part of it was just thinking about what would he want? He was very optimistic, very upbeat, hilarious guy. Uh, about six, five and a half, looked a lot like and acted a lot like Jim Carrey, the comedian, very uh, flamboyant, very bombastic, did, did lots of slapstick falls, things like that. It would make anybody laugh, you know, got along with kids, got along with old people, just kind of that guy. And he would be pretty upset with me if he thought that I'd, I, as a result of what happened, I'd crawl into some kind of a, a shell. He would have expected me to be me and he would be upset if what happened to him changed who I was. We had a pretty good relationship, you know, and uh, so, you know, I think about that frequently, at least in the early days, I, I thought about that a lot. And then the other thing is, you know, you have everybody handles this kind of stuff differently. But, you know, if you wake up the next morning and you have other kids and you have other responsibilities and you have a wife and you, you're looking around, you go, OK, you know, I can I can deal with this a lot of different ways. But if I do it in a way that's destructive to all these other relationships and I'm the cause of that. Yeah, I don't want to be that that person. I want to be the cause of that. So it wasn't so much I had to stand up and pretend it didn't happen and, and act heroic, but I acknowledge I had other responsibilities and I just kind of had to cope with it that way. And for me, it worked out, you know, it worked out. I mean, everybody, we all got through it and we all evolved and my kids grew up and they had kids. And Wow. That would, that's the hard one. That's the one that nobody ever wants to do is have to bury their own child. And so I just can't even imagine the process and things you had to go through. I'm so sorry that this happened. So thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, mean, I was a child of divorce. My, my parents uh, stayed together until I was 14, I think. And, and I ended up kind of bebopping around different high schools, like four different high schools in four different years. You know, that kind of instability and kind of the drama, trauma around divorce for anybody it can kind of take you two different directions, right? You, you're at that fork in the road. You can either decide or become a victim of it and go down that path, or you can decide and become better than it or stronger 
because of it. And I, I, all my, my siblings, we all kind of took the right path. We, we decided that whatever was happening wasn't about us and we couldn't change it. We were too young to make anything, um, to fix anything. So each of us became very successful adults, uh, very strong, very independent, very confident adults. Uh, the only time I wasn't really confident was that period of time in the beginning in uh, SEAL training when I was <laughs> a little guy trying to get through six months of hell. But, yeah. you know, but that also was a crucible that it turns out when I went back as an instructor years later, about eight years later, and I was in charge of the first one third of the training, which is where all the, the selection, all the real kind of punishment happens. And you see the psychology of, of the young man. They, they, they show up at about 120-ish per class. They've been called and, and filtered through uh, a previous 500 candidates that wanted to get into the class. And you graduate about 25. So at the end of six months. So you know that's the, the process. You look at the class. You have no idea who's going to be standing at the end of it. And when you're out on the outside looking in and you're watching it, you say, wow, I went through that. I can't believe I went through that. You don't remember much of it, actually. But then we all sit around, you know, the instructors over a beer, having the same kind of introspective thoughts about it. And we all started matching up what we thought, you know, what was our, what was our reason for getting through? And a lot of us had that same kind of resilience building issue as young kids. A lot of us were from divorced families. So a lot of us had had to cope and stand up on our own two feet and become self-starters and believe in ourselves. And that seemed to be a common theme. And even if somebody wasn't from a divorced family, they had parents that raised them to be independent and confident in themselves and not so much leaning on everything. And you, you can't get through SEAL training with that other mindset. So in an odd way, the crucible of being in a divorce allowed me and prepared me to successfully make it in and through SEAL training. And, you know, that, that's probably the biggest catharsis that's shaped my, my life, you know, from that 14 years old to probably about 20 years old, when I finally was truly considered a SEAL, that's about two years after I went through SEAL training. It takes you while you're emptying trash cans and stuff for a while. They don't, <laughs> they're very careful about letting the new guys do anything really important for a while but you're constantly learning and training, et cetera. So you eventually evolve and you grow into the role and you, you learn the skills and you become what everybody thinks seals are, you know, when they see the movies and stuff, it takes a while. And um, I didn't, I don't think I had another real life changing kind of event or experience and probably till my son passed, which we talked about, you know, nowadays I'm uh, I write, I've got eight published novels um, half of them are about a seal character I created and the other half are time travel novels. And I just finished the, the fifth seal novels. So that'll be published. Uh, that'll be my ninth overall. That'll be published uh, June 30th. And then I wrote these two business books. So I do that in the morning from like five o'clock to about six 30 every morning, get that out of the way. And it's part therapy, part fun, you know, and, uh, so I've been, I've been on cruise control pretty well here for the last four or five years. Good. I love hearing that. I know a lot of people might not know exactly what the Navy SEAL program entails. I happen to know because I work with someone who went through part of it too. So what, what exactly, why, why does it start out with 120 people and end with 25? 
Yeah. So, well, again, it, it, on average, it starts at about 500 that are in the queue and they have to pass physical, psychological aptitude. Um, and on the physical, there's certain high standards for vision and things that seem like with pilots. So you end up with this, this group that finally gets to the class, this 120 that came out of that 500 that have checked all those boxes. So they're kind of like collegiate athletes. They're too smart for their own good. And to get there, of course, they have, they have a lot of attitude because, you know, they're, they're usually doing pretty well in life amongst their peers. And then they step in and they go through the first nine weeks, which is the first phase of SEAL training. And the entire process, those first nine weeks is a psychological screening process. From the outside looking in and what you see on TV, it looks like it's physical. It's all about carrying logs and boats and being yelled at. But really, the, the physical is just the both the metaphor and the mechanism by way you, the way you wear down their psychological commitment, commitment to themselves, because it's a volunteer program. They, they, nobody said you have to become this and nobody says you have to stay. You can just walk out anytime you want and say, I'm done. So really it's all about the choice and it's on you. And that's a big burden on young people. I mean, it's sometimes they make the choice to leave and they hate themselves for a long time afterwards because they had that moment. But what we're trying to do is make sure that that moment doesn't happen in the middle of a firefight. You know, we don't want them to be in the middle of a really crazy situation and say, I shouldn't be here. This isn't for me. And they turn around and run or something. So the idea is to really measure, you know, twice up front, cut once to make sure that psychologically you've got these, this, the smaller group of people that move on to the rest of the six months that can be trained and technically, and then go into another four month period, be trained even to a much higher level before they eventually ever end into us, end up getting into a SEAL team. To do that, you have to start with the right raw material. And that raw material is somebody that has all that confidence, resilience, and humility, because we show them that they're not that great. We show them that they're not a superstar, super stud athlete. And they realize that there's a breaking point for everybody. There's a, there's a point of failure for everybody psychologically. And even if they make it through, they remember that, you know, it takes a little bit of the, the chutzpah out of you. You don't become, you know, I guess weak or, or concerned about your, your abilities and strength. You just know that you have to train really hard all the time and never rest on your laurels, never, never let your guard down. And that's, that becomes kind of the hallmark of SEALs from that point forward. I don't care if they're a 75 year old person, they, they believe things can be done, can be accomplished, can be executed, can be performed. They don't have any problem at, you know, age 60, becoming a lawyer or, or, you know, at age 68, becoming an engineer, they'll do whatever they want to do and they'll do whatever it takes to get there. And that's, that's all kind of what we screen for and then later on develop in the SEAL teams. Wow. It's incredible. I've, I've, like you said, you see it in the movies or you see it in videos and the stuff they have to endure. And I was thinking that too. I thought it is the physical strength, but it's also the mental to have to sit there and do what you do and, and go through it. And, and even just being the yelled at and stuff and, and just fighting against yourself to stay. I think that's the biggest thing. It's just like, I should go, I should give up. And it's like, no, <laughs> don't give up, you know? So yeah, I think that's the hard part. For and sure. it, it's the exact opposite of brainwashing. People right. think that that you, they take you in there and they teach you how to be tough or something. It's the opposite. I always try to use the metaphor of, of a sculptor trying to find, you know, the shape and the stone, you know, the stone shows up and then the instructors and the environment and the curriculum 
start to chip away at that thing. And it either crumbles and falls apart and cracks or something starts to evolve that was in there all the time. And that's really what, what that's the difference between SEAL training and a lot of the other crucible events in other militaries, both in the United States and overseas. We're not, we're not trying to spoon feed you some kind of dogma. We're not trying to tell you how to act. We're waiting to see if you're going to act the way we need you to act. So, you know, I wrote the first book, Be, Be Nimble, which I almost called it Be Humble for the points I've already raised. I'm a big believer in intellectual humility and that it leads to intellectual curiosity, which then leads to intellectual creativity. And I think leaders need to have that three-step kind of plan, but they have to start with the humility part first. And if you, if you don't really, and the first book talks about this, being able to addresses doing your own self-inventory, looking, looking at yourself in the mirror as either an aspiring leader or an existing leader, and, and go through some of the decisions you've been making, some of the projects or some of the challenges that have been thrown on you. How do you, how'd you react? If the first thing you did was kind of reach back in your quiver and pull out all your old experiences, all your education, everything you ever did before, everything that worked in the past, then really what you're doing is you're not being open-minded in the moment, which also means you're probably not listening to any new information, new insights. You're not um, allowing yourself to even get access to new data. You're basically saying, okay, everything that I know, which then narrows down what your choices are, is solid and right and righteous. And therefore, I only want to hear or look at things that align with that particular you know, tunnel vision. And everybody does it because they think, well, you know, if I made five decisions in the row and, then, and they were good decisions, why not make you know, the next decision in the, same, in the same way? But the more complicated the world is in your environment or the more the world changes over time that, you, that your personal environment is kind of moving through, kind of like a, a spaceship moving through space. You know, your, your company, your organization, your family, you're moving through this, this context of the environment, which is global, national, and then eventually gets down to, you know, maybe your industry and your direct competitors. And nobody else, is, nobody else cares what you think. They're doing whatever they want to do. The world's changing and doing whatever it, it's going to do, which means everything that you used to do doesn't matter anymore. Uh, and I, and I, I talk also about how uh, ludicrous it would be if you went back, you know, say 1995 and pulled out a, a Encyclopedia Britannica and the answer to somebody's question, you looked up in there and you gave them the answer because that was, that's how you learned that answer because, and the source was valid. The source was, was solid. It'd been good for a hundred years before that. Well, guess what? 20 years later, nobody even knows what you're talking about because they've never heard of the Encyclopedia Britannica and the world's changed. So if you're doing that, as, a, as a, uh, an exercise as a leader, reflecting on your own past experience, whatever your degree program was, by the way, all, all colleges, are they're just history courses. You know, they're not inventing a new future. They're teaching you what the past has, has been about. So you're basically an animal who's living and thinking and acting based on the past. So you have to clear your mind, get that intellectual humility in place. That then allows you to be curious and open then allows you to be creative and start accepting things you may not have accepted. I carry that through into the second book, uh, Be Visionary, which is mostly focused less on leadership mechanics and challenges and more on how to be a visionary, how to look at the horizon, how to convert a vision into a strategy, then how to create an operational plan to achieve the strategy, 
and how to sell all that, how to pitch all that to people that are, for the most part, tend to look at the tips of their toes. You know, nowadays, everybody's looking at hypermetric uh, measurements coming out of computer systems. And how'd you do last week? What do you think you're going to do next week? But nobody looks at the horizon. So that book is really a thesis about stopping, you know, smelling the roses, looking out, spending some time contemplating risks, threats, and opportunities. And then how do you craft those, those insights into a strategy that can be used? And then how do you build what has to be built behind that strategy so you can actually achieve it and reach it? So that's the second book. So both Be Nimble, Be Visionary are, are you know, a lot of the things that I've gone through, a lot of things I've learned, and uh, a lot of the examples from people that I've helped mentor and coach that were having a difficult time until they opened their mind. Yeah, I like the be visionary idea when it comes to like business and even family. You know, it's it's kind of similar to like the vision board, you know, something you want to see for your future, something you want to vision and bring into your life. And I think it can work with with all aspects of your life. And so I love that you're teaching that because it is easy and natural to look back and go, oh, these were the projections from last week. So what do we want to do this week? And you're always looking back, but we can kind of have this vision of our future that doesn't exist yet of what we want it to look like and make that happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. If, if anything, I think everybody could benefit from taking 20 minutes a day to just clear the to-do list out of their head. Yeah. If you're a professional leader and you're responsible for, for guiding an organization or guiding a family or, or guiding a company, this is almost something you absolutely should allow yourself to do. But it works for everybody else too. It's not so much a meditative state. It's more sitting down and saying, you know, if you can only do it once a week, do it on a Sunday morning or something, that's fine. But what happens is you start to rewire your brain. You start to you start to break up the pattern of immediately when you contemplate whatever the challenge is, you immediately break it down into little tiny bite-sized, you know, elements to execute, which is your, you know, your proverbial to-do list, which means you're never, ever, ever going to look out over the horizon. So you need to have a 20 minute period where you clear your brain. You can have a piece of paper or not. And I say, you just start with an idea like, what do I want to look like? Or what do I want to own? Or what do I want to, my organization to be like or look like in two years? Just don't go any sooner than two years. Stick out 24 months. And just do a little exercise in your head. What would that look like? Bigger, better, faster, smaller, um, happier you know, more impactful, whatever it is that you think that would be really great. And then, then you say to yourself, why am I not aiming that way? Why am I not trying to get to that outcome? What happens is after a couple of these, these sessions, your brain starts to naturally start thinking about what you're doing right now in the context of what you could be doing to, to maybe direct resources and time and effort laser-like towards something of higher value. And then it starts to creep into your daily work when somebody comes up and they're concerned about something next week, but you realize on the scale of, of importance, it's low and it has nothing to do with what could be focused on by the person that came up to you that would reach a goal that had much, much more uh, positive consequences and you know, greater consequences for you, the company, et cetera. That's it. I mean, if you do that 20 minute exercise, you don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to do an ohm or anything. You just Sit there and try to envision yourself two years from now and think of the possible. 
and it, it, your brain just starts to think like that and gets used to doing it and, and it becomes a habit. Yeah. Even you suggesting it, my brain is already like, Ooh, what do you want to do? You know? <laughs> so would, do you have like an example or anything you could share to kind of make it? Uh, well, you know, like the book be nimble is a perfect example. I, in the middle of 2019, I thought, okay, so I'm a CEO, uh, the organization I'm running will probably go on for at least another four or five years before there's any significant, you know, change like selling or anything. But what do I want to do? What, how do I see myself in two or three years? I've been the CEO for third, this will be my 13th year. And it started out with just one little company. So I thought about it, thought about it. And I did the exercise and I thought, you know what I like to do? So I put a piece of paper down and said, what do I like to do? Well, I like to teach. I like to consult. I like to write. I like, you know, the teaching and the consulting kind of lends itself to uh, speaking. So I do a lot of speaking and I said, okay, so if I like to do all these things, and these would be enjoyable. Could I make a living at this? And of course I could. And so I started doing research on my, on my free time about the paid speaking industry, the paid consulting industry. And I was a consultant a long time ago, but, you know, I started from scratch and, you know, writing books that were about business and business leadership. And I took four or five months kind of just going down those three lanes until I was smarter about it. And I sat back and I said, okay, it looks achievable, but I'm going to be an apprentice and I got to build this kind of from scratch. I mean, I've been, I've been writing novels, but I, I, didn't try to do something serious like a, a business leadership book. So the next thing was, which came first. And I thought, well, I think the book would be the platform. So I'll write the book first. And then I'll use the book to kind of get out and start to do either consulting or speaking. And that's the middle of 19. So um, I'm probably six months away from that horizon. I've been doing paid speaking. I've been, I've now I've got two business books. I've um, done a little bit of consulting more and more over time. And I'm kind of evolving into that, that picture I had in July of 2019, but rather than just thinking about it and wondering and hoping, and then casting it aside, you know, I took some, some physical actions and opened my mind to see what was out there. If it, I mean, if it came back and said, nobody makes any money doing speaking or it's impossible unless you were an ex Senator or, or an NFL superstar or something, I said, okay, I can't do that. But there was enough there. I thought, all right. So I have to develop each of those things. I have a whiteboard over here behind my shoulder and all three tracks are up there. So now I'm into the operational plan strategy to meet the vision phase. Okay. Yeah. I like that because you kind of had this goal of kind of being all three, you know, and so yeah. you look at it and you dissect what you need to do for each. And so that helps you stay on track over the years and over the months and the days because you have that kind of vision of what you want. And that way, when decisions and things come up, you can kind of go, does that align with my vision or not? So I love that. I think that's a great way to kind of have some goals on the horizon and things to work towards and be able to stay on track a little better. It's great. Advice. Yeah. It's that old, you know, journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step kind of a thing. Absolutely. And, and in my case, I, I intellectually, physically, I was, work ethic wise, I was capable of doing this whenever I wanted to 20 years ago. Yeah, I didn't because my entire focus was on day to day, right. leading other things, my my own personal, you had a different vision. I yeah. wasn't looking at what what I want to do. So. Right. Yeah, different vision and focus. And now mm -hmm. you can change that and do something different. Yeah, it's a great idea. 
Well, awesome. Well, I wish you all the best with all of that. That's, that's thank super you. great. It sounds like you're already achieving it. So this has been wonderful to learn from you. So thank yeah. you. Thanks, Heidi.